Good evening, everyone. First, I want to tell you you're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on that aforementioned greatest of all radio stations, WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation. Happy to be back. If you've been listening, you might know that I was gone for the last two weeks. So it's been three weeks since I've been in Studio 8. It's great to be back. And I want to say special thanks to station manager Ken Friedman, who did a great show last week, guest hosting Tectonic, talking about happy things like model collapse of AI, <laughs> which I agree with him. That's, that's happy in the Tectonic book. That's happy news. And this uh, giant self-promotional extravaganza, this ongoing thing between these two b- uh, billionaires uh, that may or I think probably may not end up in a wrestling match, as Ken Friedman put it, between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. If I have time at the end of the show, I might say a few words about that because I have I have a lot of skepticism about that and uh, I've I wanted to add my two cents because I have a, I have a prediction to make. But uh, before we get to uh, b- before we get to all that, let's get to the main the main thrust of the show this evening is my interview with Josh O'Kane, who's a Canadian journalist and author who has written a book called Sideways: The City Google Couldn't Buy. And uh, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the book, but f- but in order to get there, I need to tell you a little bit about my last two weeks. Yes, they're connected. And no, I didn't plan it this way. It's just coincidental, but it works, um, sort of. I hope you can be the judge if this works. So th- for the last two weeks, I was in Canada. Uh, yes, uh, I haven't been to Canada in a little while, and it just so happened. The last two weeks leading up to this show, which is all about Canada, I was in Canada, and specifically I was in the province of Ontario. I was outdoors in western Ontario for uh, for most of those two weeks, and I was being threatened by the mosquitoes in Canada that are, that are um, depicted visually on the playlist, the, the image for the, the first track of the show. If you want to see the playlist images, get your favorite uh, non-Google Chrome web, web browser and go to wfmu.org and click on playlist and comments. And if you're listening in the future, uh, this is the July 24, 2023 show, and you can find it at the wfmu.org archives, or you can go to the one-page site tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and find the playlist link. And there's there's that photo of mosquitoes in Canada. Yes, I know mosquitoes is misspelled, but you can't expect everything from meme makers now, can you? So anyway, I was in the province of Ontario, and in order to get over to Western Ontario, I flew into Thunder Bay, actually, I had to connect through Toronto. And Toronto has a big airport, which is the one I did not fly into. It also has a small airport. It's called Toronto City Airport. And I was on, I, I, I had been to Toronto before, but I was unaware of this little, tiny little airport. It has a little runway, so it doesn't, it can't fit big jets. Uh, but I was in a small prop plane and it landed just fine. And the thing about Toronto City Airport, it, it is that it is right next to downtown. And I mean right next, like if you walk out of the door of the airport and you walk, I don't know, a couple of blocks, you're among the skyscrapers of, of that very attractive downtown, that, that central business district of Toronto. And that also means that when you fly into Toronto City Airport or you fly out of Toronto City Airport, you're likely to get a great view of that downtown of, of Toronto. And as it happened... Uh, I was at a window seat and I was able to take some photos. And so these photos are going to show up on the playlist. Also, the images on tracks on the playlist. If you want to, if you want to take a look at those, those are my photos coming into and out of Toronto City Airport. Now, the reason I'm telling you this, this long story about Toronto City Airport 
is that you'll notice the photos I took, uh, I can't remember, do they show downtown right there? No, you can't really see the skyscrapers, but, but downtown is right there, right out of the frame of those photos. But what the subject of the photos is, is this construction site. I mean, there's just, there's nothing there. And this is what I want to tell you, is that if you're not familiar with Toronto, if you fly in or out of Toronto, just look at the waterfront. And this, like any other major city in North America, I mean, the, the skyscrapers, they come right up to the water. Uh, it's a fully developed downtown, except for one parcel of land that is completely unoccupied. I mean, it's just, you'll see, it's just, I'm looking at the, the first photo right now. It's just, you know, a couple of roads and a couple of trees and looks like there may be a, uh, a plant I mean, like a processing plant of some sort, but for the most part, it's it's totally empty. What is Toronto doing with a completely empty and undeveloped piece of, of land that you would expect to be filled with real estate? Well, you're going to hear more about that in my interview with Josh O'Kane, but the story is that Toronto for years has been trying to figure out what to do with this piece of land. As Josh says in the interview, he says something like, this is uh, the, the, this is prime real estate in North America. It may be the most, um, I forget how he put it, the most sought after or the most expensive undeveloped real estate in North America is that plot of land right by downtown Toronto that you can see coming into Toronto City Airport. And a few years ago, there was a company that decided that it would like to be the owner <laughs> of that piece of much sought after land. And that company, of course, was Google slash Alphabet. And Google being Google, what Google wanted to do was to create a, a, a technocratic, utopian, top-down surveillance city. I mean, Google has one speed, and that is to apply surveillance and control to everything that, that rolls back profits and control back to Google headquarters. That's the only thing this company knows how to do. And so when they look at an undeveloped piece of land, the only thing that that company can possibly come up with is let's build a surveillance city there. And uh, this came out of Larry Page's college dreams, which Josh will tell you about, that involve not one, but two Simpsons-esque ideas. Yes, ideas that we heard about originally on The Simpsons, Larry Page was actually taking very seriously. One, he wanted to build a monorail. And two, uh, and I, I can't imagine he was inspired by The Simpsons movie, but if you remember The Simpsons movie, one of the plot points was this thing of a domed city, a city under a dome. Larry Page, co-founder of Google, literally wanted to build a city under a dome. I mean, no kidding, monorails and dome cities. Those were Larry Page's brilliant ideas. And of course, layered with, with uh, layer upon layer of surveillance apparatus. And so th those were Google's aims on that piece of land that you can see uh, depicted visually on the playlist images. And it went from there. Now, spoiler, if you haven't listened to this show before, or you haven't heard this in the news before, Google failed. I covered this when this this uh, project initially failed, uh, what was it, three years, it was 2019, 2020, I think, uh, around the start of the pandemic when Google finally pulled out. And I was jubilant when that news hit. I was so happy for the citizens of Toronto not to uh, have to endure a Google surveillance neighborhood on the waterfront. So Google failed. But uh, Josh's book, again, it's, it's called Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy by Josh O'Kane. Uh, this book tells the story from beginning to end of what happened when Google tried to, as the subtitle says, buy the city, or at least that part of the city. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Josh O'Kane. If you'd like to join in the live listener comments, Go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments. And uh, let's hear it now, my interview with Josh O'Kane here on Tectonic on WFMU. Josh O'Kane, welcome to Tectonic. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Great to have you on the show. I enjoyed reading your book, Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy. The city in the subtitle is Toronto, uh, where you're based, right? You're based in or near Toronto? 
Yeah, I'm right in Toronto. And I learned in the book that Americans say Toronto, but Canadians say Toronto, right? Yeah, no, we just don't have patience for that last T. <laughs> all right, Tor- so from now on, I'll just say Toronto. Is that all right? There you go. Yeah, you sound like a natural. <laughs> uh, the city in the subtitle is Toronto. This book tells about Google's attempt to take over a plot of land on Toronto's waterfront and build a kind of surveillance neighborhood there. Longtime listeners will remember when this was going down a few years ago. I covered it week to week on the show, and I was delighted to see several months later that the attempt eventually failed and Google left town. And this book tells that entire story from beginning to end. So it was really interesting to me to fill in the many gaps I had in my understanding of how that failure took place. But I want to start at the very beginning, Larry Page's college years idea of building a monorail, this idea that he could disrupt and transform. (laughs) Well, why don't you tell us about Larry Page's monorail? This is before he founded, uh, co-founded Google with Sergey Brin. Yeah, no, when Larry Page was an undergrad, uh, he was, you know, if, if you sort of look at even just publicly available accounts of his time as an undergrad, he was just as obsessed uh, with disrupting cities and transportation as he was with computing. Um, and, you know, his friends, he would talk about his friends, he would corner them and just go on about, you know, uh, you know, highways that would be more efficient, perhaps with, you know, things such as. Um, automated vehicles that might be taxis. And this was something that was a bit of a through line through 2010 when Larry Page became the CEO of the company that he had co-founded. Over the course of the early 2010s, he became more and more invested in moonshots, these sorts of products that had nothing to do with Google's core business that might be the next Google in terms of changing the world. He he actually had a couple of different labs. Um, he had, there's the sort of well-known Google X lab, which, uh, you know, has sort of has uh, its efforts like in sort of balloon-based internet and those sorts of things. But then you've got Javelin, which was much more secretive and was looking more so for sort of creating companies that could potentially be spun off as separate companies. And they did a bunch of different projects, but one of the biggest projects that the people at Javelin tried to take on was, could we reimagine cities with the future tagline from the internet up? And he tasked this group of just a very small group of people within Google and later Alphabet with sort of trying to find ways to disrupt cities. And one of the ways that they sort of originally arrived at was what if we could build this dome-covered, regulation-free dream world on the San Francisco Bay? People who actually understood cities a little bit better said no, and uh, there actually is uh, regulation on the sea. And then you fast forward a couple of years later, it's 2016, and the company that is now called Sidewalk Labs, it sort of had eventually sort of spun it onto its own, they write a document that's called the yellow book and the yellow book is basically it's this 439 page pitch book about how this sort of googly company could reinvent cities again using the catchphrase from the internet up and you know this was going to be partially covered by a dome there's going to be very centralized city planning uh with sort of very specifically set blocks that would frankly look like a European capital with sort of mid-rise city blocks, but you'd have sort of flexible ground spaces that might be co-working spaces during the day, tapas bars at night, automated vehicles zipping around, everything's automated. You need a special key card of some kind that would be, or perhaps your phone that would give you access to various things, depending on how much data you're willing to share about yourself, which obviously leads to a lot of questions about how that data would be managed or perhaps the idea which is very obvious within the yellow book of a tiered society based on how much data you're willing to share about yourself. There's a whole lot going on in this this document from 2016 that I got my hands on called the yellow book. And this was part of, at the time, a very popular movement. Maybe it's still around, though not quite as popular, called the smart city movement. Mm -hmm. And as you write, the smart city movement viewed cities' inefficiencies as problems to solve for profit. So right away, you see that Google's attempt to solve some of these supposed problems, they're building a city from the internet up, 
that shows their ultimate allegiance is to the control and profitability they get from this internet platform rather than building a city for the people, for the needs of the citizens, for the flourishing of culture or democracy or whatever. Those basic assumptions or those basic values of profit over people came back to bite them later in Toronto. But we'll get to that. I just want to note one thing that you said there about this proposal in this giant document called the Yellow Book, that people would live lives of tiered access. Here's what you wrote. This would be a dome-covered dream world, deeply skeptical of government, a kind of fiefdom, one where people would be monitored from the moment they looked in the mirror in the morning. People living in a project sidewalk community would also have to endure tiered access to their own neighborhood, based in large part on how much data about themselves they were willing to share. Data would be a kind of currency. So here what we're seeing is a society where surveillance is a condition of rights. If you want access Mm -hmm. to the services in your own neighborhood, you have to give yourself up to surveillance from the corporate overlords that are running the city. Keep in mind, this is not a government agency in in this proposal. This is Google or a Google subsidiary that is running the show, right? So what's interesting, and I think this is important context, is this was actually more citizen focused than a lot of the previous smart city initiatives. But it was citizen focused in the sort of lens of happy capitalism uh, that sort of, you know, reigned for the first half of the 2010s of you can sort of intertwine profitability and progressivism and the idea of progressivism in society being the same as in technology, which I think is no longer quite so intertwined. Uh, and there were just little ideas here and there, like the idea that they like they used the phrase, a new market for data could be possible. This was just a footnote. Um, and yet it also was very revealing of the company's intentions of the document, that there was an intention, I do have to give them the benefit of the doubt here, that they really wanted to make society better, but it was it's ostensibly through this lens, this sort of techno-optimistic lens that really reigned for the first half of the 2010s, um, you know, when companies such as Google and, and Facebook could do no wrong. And this goes through all the way to, you know, the end of the yellow book, where they start actually going into their specific proposals for how they could make this work. And in order to do this, they wanted cities to hand over an enormous amount of functions of government from, you know, utilities to services such as perhaps some emergency services or prison services to, you know, taxation authority. And they wanted all of this under the power of a private company. And this, again, was wrapped within the sort of guise of progressiveness. Even with all of those caveats, still was more citizen-focused, I think, than the sort of more data-intensive stuff that were being proposed earlier in the decade. There's my 900 caveats for you. All right, so now we have the yellow book. Google is having trouble getting traction either in the Bay Area or in other places. Then they get a call from Toronto. We should state that there were people within Toronto's government who were interested in talking to Google because, as you say, Companies like Google and Facebook at that time, about 10 years ago, could do no wrong. There was this giant startup boom and all sorts of venture capital was flowing and Toronto wanted to get a piece of that action. There were people there who in Toronto who felt like if we could get Google to put down roots here, then there'll be like a tentpole that'll attract all kinds of other tech activity. That was a part of the story that I was unaware of, that there was active interest from Toronto to attract Google. Yeah, so Toronto, uh, as I write for possibly too long, the book is a deeply insecure city that is a bit desperate to be adjacent to greatness. Like I've, I grew up in a small town in in Canada, the East Coast, and moved here thinking it was a city that was deeply self confident, and then arrived and discovered that it was not. Um, there's a bit of a, I don't want to use the word desperation, but. Uh, Others would use the word desperation very quickly. But um, and as a result, you know, Toronto's economy was doing extremely well um, in the early 2010s. Um, the startup community was getting a lot of great attention and a lot of organizations were really trying to figure out ways to foster that and to keep it growing. At this juncture in 2015, this really weird, obscure government agency called Waterfront Toronto, which it's for the 15 years of its existence, had basically just been revitalizing the lakeshore along Lake Ontario 
by building out infrastructure and parks to raise land value to sell plots of land to private developers to open up the waterfront to more development. It gets a new CEO, his name is Will Fleissig, and he is really interested in sustainability and he thinks the Toronto startup uh, community could, you know, anyone who helps boost it could help the entire city. Under his new tenure at Waterfront Toronto, they were looking for ways to do something really with a heavy emphasis on technology and sustainability. And as it happened, one of his employees previously worked for this guy named Dan Doktoroff, who was deputy mayor of New York in the early 2000s um, and had tried to bring the Olympics and failed uh, to the city, but had really recast the city of New York towards an economic development lens and a lot of different aspects of it. And it so happened that one of his sort of former senior people that he worked with on the Olympic bid now worked for Waterfront Toronto. And just as the sort of yellow book kind of simmers away um, and disappears, this guy emails Dan Doktoroff, who had become the CEO of Sidewalk Labs just prior to the yellow books writing. And they invited Sidewalk Labs to pitch for this 12-acre Tetris block-shaped piece of land on the waterfront that the company Waterfront Toronto happened to own. And that sort of set into motion the cascading comedy of errors that uh, became the Keyside Project, because Keyside being the name of this 12-acre Tetris-shaped plot of land just next to downtown Toronto. And the 12 acres is really important for people to note because that's not a lot of land if you want to develop a surveillance city. And indeed, Google through Sidewalk Labs understood this from the very beginning. This became a point of contention that Mm -hmm. carried it all the way through to the failure, which was that, as you write, Keyside just wasn't big enough for many of Sidewalk's ideas to make financial sense. And of course, Financial sense is the reason why Sidewalk and Google were getting involved. By the way, for listeners who haven't read the book and maybe haven't seen this written down, we're saying Keyside. It's Q-U-A-Y side, but it's not Quay side. It's pronounced Keyside. Thank you for that clarification. I'm a print guy, so I always forget to bring that up. (laughs) And so Keyside is this 12-acre, like you say, Tetra-shaped block, very small, but there is adjacent property that's much bigger. And Google or Sidewalk Labs, eventually they become one and the same with Alphabet. On the Google side, they're looking at the adjacent property and right away they're thinking, well, we'll start with this, but of course we'll eventually morph into taking over this entire block. Wasn't that in the air from the very beginning? Yeah, so you could sort of look at Keyside as sort of the last natural point on the eastern part of Toronto's waterfront before this big peninsula juts out called the Portlands. If you could get Keyside, according to this sort of request for proposals that Waterfront put out, if you succeeded at Keyside, they were willing to let people potentially get access to more of that land pending other government approvals. It is sort of this arguably like one of the most valuable, underdeveloped pieces of land in North America. It's right next to downtown Toronto. You can walk there. And Teesside, if you look at it as a gateway, you can look at it as a potential way to get into all that. And there was like one line in this RFP that said, if you succeed at Keyside, you can do so much more. And then when Sidewalk writes its 200 plus page response to the RFP that ultimately wins, they use the phrase Eastern Waterfront, I think like more than 200 times. But Waterfront Toronto didn't even have the power to let Sidewalk Labs use this land. And yet anything beyond the 12 acres was what Sidewalk wanted and frankly would need to scale up technologies. If you're going to, as an example, 50 years from now, after you've built the community and you want to test automated vehicles, if you know we're finally there by then, if they ever happen, um, you know, you do kind of need more than 12 acres. That's like a handful of intersections at best. If you look consistently through Sidewalk's documentation, they always said, you know, we need way more than this. And Waterfront consistently also said, we cannot give you more than that. And for all of the conversations around the potential of surveillance or the sort of shift of power from the public to the private sector, this was fundamentally a battle over land and how much between somewhere between 12 and 500 acres settled around 190 acres towards the end, and then back down to 12. Uh, This was a conversation about real estate development. 
Yeah, and Google got into this thinking it would use all sorts of disruptive technology that would magically make everything better. And my sense in reading this, Josh, is that Google expected more gratitude on the part of Toronto, that they would come in and grace Toronto with its presence and that Waterfront Toronto would say, oh, thank you so much for being here. Of course, after the 12 acres, you can have the Portlands. We're just so happy. We're so honored that you would come to our city. And when there was resistance, which we can talk about in a moment where the resistance came from, Sidewalk Labs and the Google parent company, they were caught off guard. Like, what? what's the problem? I mean, and they said, well, you want to take over the Portlands? And the, no, of course we don't. We never said that. And, and all of a sudden, they're on their back foot trying to describe what their intentions were that were maybe a little different from what the proposal had originally said. And they were never able to generate a coherent response after that when Toronto somehow did not fall over itself to ask Google in to build a surveillance city that would make financial sense for Google. I mean, can you imagine that a city would not allow Google to buy it, (laughs) to uh, reference your subtitle? Do you think early on that Dr. Roth and the Sidewalk Labs team were caught off guard by the questions and and the early resistance to this idea? It's interesting, right? Because like when they showed up, when they won this RFP, they had everyone from the highest possible offices of government like show up to the opening announcement. Like, yeah, Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Justin Trudeau showed up and made a gaffe that launched a thousand conspiracy theories, which we don't need to get into because it takes more than half an hour to explain. The premier at the time, Kathleen Wynne, the mayor at the time, John Tory, they all showed up. They all sang the praises of Sidewalk Labs and what they were going to do. And then... Slowly over time, controversy shifted away at it. They kind of stopped showing up to the announcement. Deputies would show up, and then eventually no deputies would show up. People started realizing, oh, this isn't this big thing that all these governments had celebrated as a city-building initiative. There's something more here. To go back to something else you had said was the implied um, expectation that, oh, things are going to go super well. Uh, Numerous people who worked with Sidewalk Labs and inside Sidewalk Labs pointed out to me as I was reporting the book, and I spoke to more than 150 people, is that Sidewalk Labs, a lot of these people who worked very closely with the company were surprised that they almost treated Toronto like a backwater village. That was used by multiple sources to me um, as the idea that there was an expectation that they could walk in and take what they wanted. You know, I talked to people at City Hall and they would almost like laugh behind the backs of certain people at Sidewalk Labs who would kind of walk in assuming they could get whatever they wanted and would feign surprise when they realized they had to follow due government process. No, I will say that Toronto in particular and Canada in general is a very like process-oriented city. We're very slow and bureaucratic, and that is something that is very much a fault. And as someone who wants to disrupt, and I think people do deserve the opportunity to disrupt cities, but they also need to follow the rules of democracy. But that tension between can we disrupt something and, by the way, you're in one of the sort of more heavily process-oriented cities in the world – was one of the tensions that never went away in the project. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Josh O'Kane, Canadian journalist and author We're talking about his book, Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy. The city mentioned, of course, is Toronto, Canada. Google slash Alphabet tried to buy a slice of that in order to build a surveillance neighborhood and to use Toronto citizens as their guinea pigs in this surveillance capitalist experiment. And thankfully, it failed. And Josh's book tells why and how it failed. And um, as he just mentioned, there's a number of inputs to that, to the the victory of Toronto over Google, one of which is that Toronto is a very process-oriented city, and Google was more about strutting around and saying it was going to disrupt everything, which is not a great fit. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Josh O'Kane here on Tectonic on WFMU.
Well, there's a tension between disruption and process that you write about as you tell the story of Bianca Wiley, who is mm. one of the people who mounts helps lead the resistance to this project. This is a, another gap I wasn't aware. Bianca Wiley, I covered years ago as uh, the resistance, it, it came to be known as Block Sidewalk, was getting headlines. I thought that Block Sidewalk was mostly activists in Toronto complaining about the surveillance possibilities of Google's new neighborhood. But you write several times that for Wiley, here, here's your quote, privacy was a red herring. Wiley's greater concern was the privatization of public services. There is a power imbalance between cash-strapped governments and rich tech giants. And this brings up the relationship between technology and democracy. Wiley mm -hmm. said, the biggest issue with this project is not privacy, it's governance. I thought that was well stated that what's really at stake here, as you said earlier, it's a real estate deal and it's the governance of the real estate. What do we do with a city? Who runs the city? Who has taxation rights? Who gets to set policy? Google wanted it to be Google. Wiley stood up and said, uh, no, <laughs> in Toronto, it's still a democracy and your technology is not going to disrupt the process of actual democracy where citizens have a right in the future of their own city. How did Bianca Wiley originally get involved? It's interesting. Like she wrote a blog post like shortly after uh, this all happened, and then she wound up getting invited onto the, the wonkiest political affair show that we have here in Ontario. Uh, from that, people started talking to her. Um, she was heavily involved with civic technology initiatives in the city and had always been looking at the relationship between government and technology companies and how easily government can be taken advantage of by technology companies broadly as a sector and is still continuing that work to this day. Um, she really elaborated on the broader power struggle that could happen because as an example, you know, nothing ever got built. There was no surveillance. And towards the end of the project, the way that Sidewalk Labs talked about technologies, it was going to minimize the use of any of its own technologies that would have surveilling capabilities, but that it would open things up to the Canadian tech ecosystem. And if they were to put technology in, they would hope that there would be public policy governing it, which does, as, as from a messaging standpoint, absolve them of the accusations of surveillance. But even as they were moving towards this messaging, you know, the 1,500-page draft master plan, they very much were, again, asking for powers of government. They wanted governments to rewrite some laws. They wanted land handed over them. It very much was an ask for things that often would require parliamentary or legislative debate or just any kind of due process, a fair procurement process for use of the taxpayers' dollars. All of this kind of comes from the same thing, because as I point out, the fears in the book, you know, one of the early chapters is set in Berlin. They managed to get a lot of people opposed to the sort of Google startup campus in Berlin, the opponents did, out of fear that the potential for surveillance can chip away at the other rights and freedoms. And so that eventually does sort of come its way down the funnel. But Bianca was always looking at the whole funnel. She was basically saying, this is an organization that is taking away what could be taking away, is making requests to take away powers that we as Western society assume would be handled by the government. And what did people within Sidewalk Labs say or within Alphabet? I mean, would they admit that they were trying to usurp the functions of government? Or did they still see themselves as some kind of saving force? If you look at the history of Dan Doctoroff's career, so Dan Doctoroff being the CEO of Sidewalk Labs, he came into government thinking government was very inefficient. And when he became deputy mayor of New York shortly after 9-11, he basically tried to blast through process to make the city more efficient. He did it in ways that didn't necessarily stop it from being a democracy, but he cut through bureaucracy was his what he was really, really pushing through. You know, some of his gripes right through to the very end when I spoke with him for the book was... You know, he was frustrated. He called trying to solve Keyside like trying to solve a hundred-sided Rubik's Cube, I believe, is the example he gave to me. And in his mind, he was always cutting through bureaucracy, that he was a champion of democracy, but wanted to make democracy more efficient. But 
in the end, so much, so many of the power that they were asking for, at least here in Canada, again, where we're following so much, you know, really big sticklers for process, that hit a lot of roadblocks because people did not want that. There are elements of bureaucracy that are meant to protect democracy. And, you know, inside Sidewalk, there were people who, you know, the people who stuck through with that company to the very end genuinely believed that they could make cities more efficient and democratically accountable. But you had people like Bianca Wiley arguing that this approach could be bad for the power that citizens have in their democracies. Well, I can speak from experience because we've had a lot of Sidewalk Labs effects here in New York City, one of which is this absolute blight on our sidewalks. Are you going to start talking about Link NYC? Yes. Which, and I've done multiple shows on Link NYC over the years. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how much I loathe these devices, these nine foot high kiosks, three meters tall. I did a show just a few months ago about their successor. First of all, Link NYC was supposed to generate so much revenue from advertising and it was going to be cash flow positive and it's going to give all these cute and fun little tips about the city. You know, you walk by them now. And the hidden cameras on both sides of that giant LED screen are watching you. And then there's the Wi-Fi sniffer. And uh, so it's conducting surveillance on every single citizen and visitor who walks by those things. And sometimes there are multiple. Did you know this, Josh? Sometimes there are multiple surveillance kiosks on the same block. Like, why does Google need so much surveillance that they would, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's for the tips. It's for the fun, friendly tips about the city. But you need them twice a block. And now... The project has been such a failure and has fallen short of its revenue goals so much that the city has doubled down on the investment and is now rolling out Link 5G, not kiosks, but 32-foot-high towers all over the city. Mm -hmm. This is the outcome of Google's thinking. I know it's the City Bridge Consortium, but, you know, let's get real. There's only one part of the City Bridge Consortium that's a $2 trillion behemoth. Look, I'm all for cutting through bureaucracy and doing good things quickly within government. There's nothing wrong with that. But when the outcome is thousands of surveillance devices that are put on the streets that did not involve the citizens asking for these, it's a huge waste of resources. And what's interesting is if you subtract the function of these devices, I mean, one of the criticisms that I read that I think ties into what I was working on in the book Sideways was that a lot of the outer boroughs didn't get access to these. So if you just subtract their function and think about the equitable distribution of anything in a city, they were not actually equitably distributed, at least as of the major reporting that was happening in March 2020, where there were questions about the remuneration of the income to the cities as well as how they were even being spread out. It's There were a lot of major questions about Link NYC, um, and it seems like they're still uh, chugging along. They're chugging along and they're growing I don't want to derail us too much because we got to get back to Toronto and what happened there. But this book, Sideways, does mention Lincoln YC, and it also Mm -hmm. makes a mention of Dr. Off's other legacy, which is the building of Hudson Yards, Mm -hmm. which is maybe what Keyside might have looked like with giant skyscrapers and ambient surveillance and sensors in the sidewalks, in the kiosks, in the buildings. It's a very cold place. There's no real civic life there. I mean, there are tourists who take pictures for Instagram in front of the, as you rightly put it, the giant empty shawarma sculpture. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, there's no feel of New York City there. People call it Dubai on the Hudson for good reason. Yeah. I mean, I, I visited there like several days before the pandemic shut the world down. And I was quite surprised at how, the lack of street life. Um, it was, you know, there were tourists sort of flooding the vessel, but, you know, for the most part, it was people running to their giant glass offices that look like exacto knives and a bunch of empty luxury stores. It was right. a very strange community, I guess. If you could call it a community, I guess there are some ultra penthouse condos in some of those buildings, but I know among the offices, but yeah. Uh, Here we are three and a half years later, and I can tell you from direct observation, Josh, that it really has not changed. It's big tech employees going into the skyscrapers, it's tourists, and that's about it. And New York allowed to happen in Hudson Yards what Toronto was able to rise up against and resist. 
back to what happened in Keyside. So you have Bianca Wiley and others raising questions that are never fully answered by Sidewalk Labs and Google, later called Alphabet. What's the final stage of this process when it finally goes down the drain? You know, over the course of its life after it's announced, you know, controversies emerge over uh, how the project came to be. Ontario's Auditor General released a scathing report um, on the RFP process. This leads to uh, the province of Ontario firing a bunch of its directors, and which is, of course, after Waterfront Toronto has its CEO resign amid questions about how things were handled over the course of all of this. Um, numerous other people resign or get fired or threatened to do that. It comes to a head in June 2019 when Sidewalk Labs releases this, they call it the Draft Master Innovation and Development Plan. It's 1,500 pages long, and this is the document where they've been you know, promising since the announcement that was going to answer any questions about what Sidewalk Labs wants to do. And it is jumbled. It is repetitive. It looks like someone printed out 10 copies of a master's thesis and shuffled the pages. And it's asking for things that uh, Waterfront Toronto had told it explicitly not to ask for, including data management proposals and the amount of land that they were going to have access to. It explicitly said Keyside is not going to be enough. And Waterfront Toronto is furious. And its chair basically says, uh, we're not going to accept most of the major things here unless you come to our terms. And so in Halloween, four months later in 2019, Sidewalk Lab says, yes, you know, we're going to move forward on all of your terms, but we just need to check the financial viability. And then this thing called the pandemic happens. And for the first time in many, many years in Toronto, the real estate market uh, is not this sort of giant skyrocketing, you're going to make money until you die sort of investment. The only 12 acres they were ever promised, which they were a bit worried about when they agreed to Waterfront's terms that they could only work on those 12 acres, really stopped seeing a good financial investment. And so they walked away. You have a scene where Google's or Alphabet's CFO, Ruth Porat, comes and has a tense meeting or two with Waterfront Toronto. And and with me. <laughs> oh, that's right. With you. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's several points in the book where you say, I asked this question and I got the following response. You think, wow, you've, you've really been on this story for a while. But <laughs> in addition to the pandemic, there was another aspect of this that I was unaware of. And that, that is that Larry Page's influence diminished around the time of the pandemic. I think it mm -hmm. became clear within Google slash Alphabet that all of his moonshots <laughs> were pretty much failures. I mean, it was a giant waste of money. As someone said, I think this quote was at the beginning of the book, within Google, they said, basically, this is an advertising company with hobbies. And yeah. Larry Page's hobbies started to get shut down. And that's what Ruth Porat, as chief financial officer, wanted to do this project was just not looking like Google was going to make any money, which, of course, was the only reason they, they were there in the first place, was to make money <laughs> off of the citizens of Toronto. And when it looked like they were no longer able to make money, then they finally pulled the plug. It was, uh, yeah, a very fascinating journey. And yeah, in December 2019, you know, Larry Page and Sir Ibrahim shocked the world and say, we're stepping down from our roles as CEO and, and president of Alphabet. And uh, Sundar Pichai is elevated to the sort of head of Alphabet. He'd already been running Google, uh, but they diminished their influence, and including on the budget. And it was well known that Ruth Porat was frustrated at the ways that the ways that Larry Page's pet projects were spending money. And, you know, with Sundar Pichai, I think three weeks after he became CEO, gave an interview to Fortune magazine where he basically said, you know, we will be bringing in more financial rigor to these things. And then you layer the pandemic on top of that. And it was very unsurprising that Sidewalk Labs walked away. And now it's not even a company anymore. Sidewalk Labs is not even a company. We should note the sad news that Dan Doktoroff uh, has been diagnosed. Has he been diagnosed with ALS? Is it official now? I'm not aware if he's been officially diagnosed, uh, but I do know that he had a family history of ALS and that he was exhibiting the symptoms and that they appeared to be potentially worsening in uh, late, I believe, 2021. Yeah. Um, and he made the decision to step down. And when he stepped down, there was no natural successor and the company wound up just dissolving and most of its 
very few remaining business lines were just reabsorbed back into Google. So now we get to the point where Sidewalk Labs is gone from Toronto. Waterfront Toronto continues to do work, although in a different direction. You say that the new key side will focus on affordable housing, sustainability, and even senior citizens. So there's actually been a turnaround there that it sounds like Keyside has some development happening, and finally, it's for the benefit of citizens in a, in a democratic society, not users to be surveilled and harvested by some monolithic uh, $2 trillion behemoth, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the optimistic way to look at it. The pessimistic way to look at it, which insiders at Sidewalk Labs would say, is that it's uh, just a regular Toronto-style development, a big anonymous condo that's going to be built there with retail and the podium. You know, Waterfront Toronto is really focused on the sustainability aspects of this. There's going to be a lot of green space and energy efficiency projects. But for the most part, to the average person, it's just going to look like an extension of the rest of the city. And so we come to lessons learned. (laughs) What can cities and government agencies learn about this misadventure? Near the end of the book, you had one line that I thought summed up the entire process here, and it was the following. Buying into a billionaire's glossy dream might not be the best way to build a city. Well said, Josh. (laughs) Yeah, this was meant to be, in Sidewalk's own words, Uh, bridging the disparate worlds of technologists and urbanists. They never built that bridge, um, even though it was explicitly what they set out to do. You know, this was a company that wanted to do so much more with cities than Toronto could possibly ever even allow it, even if it wanted to. And I think we learned that cities and technology companies have very different structures, different aims, and it's accountable to different people and different kinds of people. Being beholden to a shareholder requires a completely different set of actions than being beholden to the citizens of a country. And democracy is meant to be messy because everyone gets to have a say. And that is just not what the execution of this project would have allowed for. How's the book done, Josh? I saw that it was listed on a bestseller list. Has it caught some attention with Canadians and others? Yeah, um, I've been you know very happy. You know, it's been a national bestseller here in Canada. Um, it was nominated for uh, the Writers Trust of Canada's uh, Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for Political Writing, and uh, it's actually being adapted into a play um, at Crow's Theatre here in Toronto as a comedy uh, because playwrights have much more ability to uh, use the facts to tell a different story than a journalist does. So I'm very interested to see what that turns out like. Well, congratulations on the on the success. And thanks, um, thanks for putting in the time, both as a journalist asking the tough questions, and now as an author, writing out the whole story so we could learn from it. The book is called Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy, by my guest today, Josh O'Kane. Josh, thanks again for being on Tectonic today. Thanks for having me, Mark. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining eight minutes of the show, and then the great Dave Mandel will be in Studio A, bringing you another great episode of It's Complicated, which is Dave's prog rock show. Here on WFMU every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Definitely stay tuned for that. We just heard my interview with Josh O'Kane, journalist there in Canada and author of a fascinating new book called Sideways, The City Google Couldn't Buy, talking about the happy news that Google totally failed to take over the Toronto waterfront and build a surveillance city there in the Keyside neighborhood. And 
Toronto is better for it. As we talked about at the end of the interview, there are plans afoot for development of that parcel of land. And as Josh said, the optimistic take is that it'll be citizen-focused. Maybe there's a more pragmatic approach or viewpoint that it's uh, maybe not quite as citizen-focused as as it might look on the surface. But I can say this, no matter what, we know that Google is not developing Keyside, and that is legitimately good news. See, there is good news in tech from time to time, and (laughs) I have spent most of this hour talking to you about a book that gives good news, a really good headline. As I said earlier, I talked about this Uh, as the news was breaking a couple of years ago. But it's really good that Joshua Kane wrote this all out. And it's nice to hear that the book is a bestseller in Canada. I mean, that's great. I guess Canadians really do care about citizen actions kicking out American big tech behemoths. And uh, as I alluded to in the interview, I just wish New Yorkers would do something similar with all the sidewalk labs nonsense or... You know, I guess since Sidewalk Labs is gone, whatever is the current subsidiary of Google Alphabet that is blighting our sidewalks and our streetscapes with these Link NYC and now Link 5G towers. There was an article in the Times uh, in the past two weeks when I was gone. I have it bookmarked. I need to read it about different neighborhoods, I think, in Manhattan that are starting to resist the uh, the eyesore and the surveillance and everything else that comes with these Link 5G towers. So maybe I will revisit that topic at some point. But I do wish that New York showed a little a little more spirit to resist these big tech companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Uber, Airbnb, and so on that uh, act with such impunity in our cities and are degrading the life of citizens, communities, small businesses, and the, and the very social fabric of our living spaces. And the citizens just don't seem to do very much. But in Toronto, between activists and government officials and journalists and everyday citizens, they all worked together and they heaved Google right out of the city. And of course, Google said, no, 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 it wasn't because of them. It was because we didn't want to be there. It was because of the pandemic. And so we left and it had nothing to do with the citizens. Right, Google. Good job. Uh, There was an article in Curbed last September that was talking about this Keyside uh, story. It's a and I have I've linked to this. It's by Alyssa Walker. I've linked to it on the playlist at WFMU.org called, Is There Such a Thing as an Ethical Smart City? And this article notes that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association called Google's Keyside plan a, quote, non-consensual, state-authorized mass capture of Canadians' personal information. Well, there was a group that knew what this was about. (laughs) It was surveillance and mass capture of people's information that was going to be fed to a $2 trillion company and no doubt being shared at some level with uh, local and provincial government. It's just not a good way to build a democracy. I hope we are beginning to learn that, that that, uh, intrusive ambient surveillance of citizens is not a good way to build or promote or grow a democracy. It's just not. I know it's great for eight dudes on the West Coast who want to build just three more mansions, just three more mansions, and they'll be done. Please, just three more mansions. But for all the rest of us, the other 99.999, how many nines after that decimal point, percent of us, it is not a good deal. And we should all be looking for ways to resist, rise up, and throw out these awful plans of these trillion-dollar, two-trillion-dollar tech companies that are not made for our benefit. Um, I need to say one thing about this Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg cage match. I think I can do this in one minute. Can I do it in one minute? Um, I don't think the match is going to happen. That's my prediction. Uh, I think Mark Zuckerberg earnestly wants this to happen because he's been practicing so hard and his image is getting burnished and people are beginning to forget how he incited genocide in Myanmar and he got written up by the United Nations for a platform that helped bring about genocide. 
and he's just about to get people to start liking him a little bit because he's perceived as less awful than Elon Musk. So he really, 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 really wants to get in that octagon. Elon Musk has no interest in fighting Mark Zuckerberg, is my prediction. He just wants the attention, like always. As long as he can keep your attention, he comes out on top. And if the, if the match is scheduled, he will milk it for all the attention and PR, and then he will cancel, pull out, and give some weird excuse at the very last second, and do the next outrageous thing so that he remains in our attention. Yeah, it's Dave Mando coming into Studio A. Hey, listen, guys, I got to get out of here. It's complicated. It's coming right up. You can hear the cart trundling forward. You can hear it. It's coming at me. I got to get out of here. Dave, can you, ra can you rattle that any louder? The wheels need oil. Oh, my gosh. Everything needs oil. Okay, friends, you've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google and get out of any Google-owned cities if and when you come across one. There's only one outro I can possibly play tonight. This has been a lot of fun. Have a good time, everyone. Now, wait just a minute. We're twice as smart as the people of Shelbyville. Just tell us your idea and we'll vote for it. All right. I tell you what I'll do. I'll show you my idea. I give you the Springfield Monorail. I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook, and by gum, it put them on the map. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine, bona fide, electrified six-car monorail. What'd I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right, monorail. 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 I hear those things are awfully loud. It glides as softly as a cloud. Is there a chance the trap could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. What about us Brendan slobs? You'll be given cushy jobs. Were you sent here by the devil? No good, sir. I'm on the level. The ring came off my pudding can. Take my penknife, my good man. I swear it's Springfield's only choice. Throw up your hands and raise your voice. Monterey. What's it called? Monterey. Once again. And that sound means my 30, 38 seconds of preparation are up. Good evening, everybody. It's great to be back. Um, I was out last week, and thank you, in case I forget later, let me say right up front, thank you very, very, very much to my friend Sheila B. for filling in and doing such a great job for me last week, for this show last week, not for me, for you. But it's great to be back. Welcome. This show is called It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm the host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at this time, 7 till 8 p.m. Eastern, and it's great to have you aboard. I'm going to start tonight's show with a couple of, well, uh, uh, apparently related, but not actually related things. We're going to hear first from a group called uh, Scherzu, which I guess is, is a musical pun. It's kind of clever. S-C-H-E-R-Z-O-O. -O. So it, it seems to me it's a pun on scherzo, which is a musical term, but it's Scherzu. And this is a group led by a guy named Francois Tolo, T-H-O-L-L-O-T, French, if you couldn't tell from, from my pronunciation. French multi-instrumentalist. -instru he plays loads of instruments, guitar, bass, drums, I think, and more. Uh, he's the leader of this group, and we are going to hear a track from a, 
a uh, 2020, 2020 release, an album called Five, the numeral five, and it, yes, it is their fifth release. This this group, Scare Two, is, I guess, uh, generally considered or generally lumped in with what's called Zool music, Z-E-U-H-L, kind of a subgenre of prog, you might say invented more or less by the group Magma, the French group Magma, and there's a, many, many uh, sub, you know, later generations of, of groups who were, who were influenced by Magma, and that style of music is generally known as Zool, and that's what, that's what these folks do. Scared to, I'm going to follow that, I said related, not actually related, I'm going to follow this up. I've actually been meaning to play this other guy for a while. His name is Jacques Tolo, same, same last name, also French, and as far as I know, they're not related in, in any way. Uh, Jacques was more of a jazz musician, although what I'm going to play, I think, qualifies. It's a bit proggy enough. And I'm going to play, I, keep, I keep, keep putting this off because the album that I wanted to play, the album of his that I wanted to play, is a bunch of very, very short tracks. So I'll play a couple of them, two very short pieces by Jacques Toulot. So we're going to hear Scherzu led by Francois Tolo, multi-instrumentalist record from 2020, three three years ago. And I'm going to follow that with a couple of very short pieces from Jacques Tolo. These will be from, I think, 1971. And that's that. 